0: Change management skills and tools and toolkits are baseline. We need those in our profession. We need to know them. We need to use them. However, we need much more of a focus on change leadership, but sometimes we overdo it or sometimes we miss the fact that we have these other tools in our tool bag that we should leverage in a change process. That's what helps us be effective. That's a change-intelligent
1: leader. Today, I speak to Barbara Troutline, who is a highly respected change consultant, author, speaker, and researcher, who has over 25 years of experience equipping leaders to achieve transformational goals. She is the author of the book Change Intelligence, where she describes how to use CQ or change intelligence to lead change that sticks. Through her company Change Catalysts, Barbara partners with all levels of leaders from CEOs to the front lines to execute mission-critical initiatives. Barbara holds a PhD in organizational psychology from the University of Michigan. Have you ever gone through change in your personal life or at work and thought to yourself, there must be a better way to do this? Welcome to Unchange, the podcast that explores change that works and the people who make it happen. And now from Solid Gold Studios, here's your host, Pietro Dupisani. Welcome to the studio, Barbara. It's lovely to have you here. It was wonderful to meet you last year in New Orleans at the ACMP conference, and it's lovely to speak to you again. How are you doing today?
0: I'm oh, wonderful. Thank you so much. Thanks for having
1: me. It's a big pleasure. Okay, so let's start off with uh, so many of us um, who are interested in change management didn't start out as change practitioners. So what motivated you to pursue change management as a career? I mean, did you study change management? Did you do it from the start?
0: That's a wonderful question. Actually, I am like you. I had not intended to have quote unquote change management as my career. I started off in a by obtaining my PhD in organizational psychology. And when I was in my graduate program, I got a part time job at a consulting firm. And in the consulting firm, we were actually my first project was working with a steel mill in bankruptcy. And it was back in the mid-80s and uh, at that time in the United States were undergoing a recession. A lot of automotive plants were shut down or in danger of shutting down. And therefore, their suppliers, like steel companies, were really hit hard. So as I mentioned, I was working as part of a consulting team in the steel mill in bankruptcy. And of course, our job was to attempt to help them emerge from bankruptcy, return to solvency. So of course, that's a huge change. So, um, so from my very early career, that's what I had been doing is helping leaders, teams, and organizations manage big change projects. And I remember distinctly my first day on the job, standing up, introducing myself to a room full of about 30 or 40 steel workers. And I get up as a 25 year old woman (laughs) and I uh, introduce myself and I talk about all the changes that we were going to implement. High performance teams, total quality management, lean Six Sigma. And a gentleman gets up, a steel worker. He's a huge guy, six foot five inch, 250 pounds. He comes right to the middle of the room, right in front of me and says, we're steel workers and we don't listen to girls. (laughs) So right from the start of my career, I was both helping companies manage change in order to be competitive and survive and thrive. And also to some degree, I guess I was a big change just for the, (laughs) for the folks that I was working with, a woman in steel. (laughs) Yeah, that's a wonderful
1: story. I was wondering, The book that I have of yours, you wrote the book Change Intelligence um, with the tagline Use the Power of CQ to Lead Change That Sticks. How did you go from being this 25-year-old woman in front of the steel workers to writing this book and coming up with this concept?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. So from there ensued 20 years of helping companies in steel and other industries manage change. So in the beginning, again, it was a difficult economy, so a lot of our changes were turnarounds, helping companies change to survive. Then I started doing more in terms of helping new startup facilities build. I've done a lot with IT implementations, uh, mergers and acquisitions. So a lot with, again, helping companies deal with and be successful through major transformations. In almost all of those projects, there has been a component of leadership development, so developing leaders with new skills in order to lead in these changing times. About seven years ago now, I put those two ideas together, managing change and leadership development, and came up with the idea that what we really need to focus on more and more is leading change. Because from the time I started in business in the mid-'80s, We've known that the failure rate of major organizational changes like turnarounds, like startups, like mergers and acquisitions, like new technology implementations has been around 70 percent. John Cotter and his colleagues at Harvard did research in the mid 80s, came out with that statistic. 70 percent of major organizational changes fail. And we all know the carnage that results from that. And then right around the time I came up with the concept of change intelligence, McKinsey and Consulting, the global consulting firm, did a similar study and came out with a similar statistic. So that meant that in the span of about 20 years, we hadn't moved the needle on our ability to design and implement changes that stick. So I was looking at what's the gap. And again, that's what I came up with, that we have lots of tools and methods for managing change, for change management. We have lots of tools and methods for developing various kinds of leadership capabilities. What was missing is our ability to really lead change. And that's what CQ, or change intelligence, is all about. We all know
1: about IQ, and some of us even know about EQ. How do we use all of these quotients, including CQ, to address the change needs of people who need to go through change? So, How do we integrate all of these fantastic quotients that we come up
0: with? Yeah, that's wonderful. Sometimes I joke that we should have a quotient summit. <laughs> a Q summit. <laughs> well, you know, we all know what IQ is, right? And we all know the range our IQ is in. It's it's our raw intellectual intelligence that we're born with. The thing about IQ, it's that it's after adolescence, it's very hard to develop, right? Um it's it's rather stable over time. Of course, we most of us have heard of EQ emotional intelligence, and that's all about how well we understand our own emotions and can manage our triggers and how well we understand the emotions of others and can use that information to empathize with them and build relationships. So that is definitely a capability that we can develop over time. And what I love is that when we look at research into IQ and EQ, what studies show is that IQ or your raw intellectual intelligence will get you in the door in an organization. It will get you the job, your technical abilities and skills. However, once you're in an organization, what separates average performers from superior performers, and this is across job titles, industries, levels, is not your IQ, it's your EQ. It's how not intellectually smart you are, but how people smart you are. And I think it's the same thing with CQ, that CQ really separates the leaders who are effective in really leading change, designing and implementing change that sticks, from those who are less effective. And just like EQ, CQ is a skill that we can learn and a capability that we we can develop.
1: You've mentioned that certain components of self-awareness is important for uh, leaders to be able to effectively lead change. How important is
0: self-awareness in leading change? Absolutely, that's the definition of change intelligence, at least half of it, is change intelligence or CQ, and I use those terms interchangeably, is the awareness of our style of leading change, and second, our ability to adapt our style to be optimally effective across people and situations. So the two parts, first of all, it's being aware of what our style is, and then once we're aware of our style, we are, the corollary of that, is we're aware that there's other styles, that we have options as a leader, and the more options we have, the more power we have. If we're not aware of our style, Then we're not aware that we have other options. We have other tools in our tool bag. Because sometimes our style might work. When you have a hammer, right? You know, when you have a nail, that's a great style. However, sometimes we don't have a nail. We need to get a different tool from our toolkit. And that's what CQ helps us do. Recognize what our dominant strengths are. Also recognize that we have different, we have different strengths. We have different options. And therefore we can be more powerful and effective as a change leader. I love how you've linked in the book
1: all of the change styles to the head, heart, hand model. In a nutshell, how does this all
0: work? Yeah, that's a great question. So the next question people tend to ask me is just what you did. If change intelligence is you know, the awareness of your style of leading change, what are those styles? And so what I've distinguished in almost 30 years now working with leaders at all levels and by the way, I consider us all leaders, regardless of if we're the CEO, if we have manager in our title, if we're an individual contributor, I believe we're all leaders of change. So that's how I use that expression. So anyway, so the different change leader styles are people tend to lead from the heart. That's And people who lead from the heart, they focus on the people that are involved in change. So they, they engage, they collaborate, they communicate. And this is a strength-based model. So that's a strength. However, sometimes a strength can be overdone. So for example, high heart leaders, sometimes they can be on the side of the bell curve that wants 90, 95% of the people on board before they move forward. And sometimes the business case, the sense of urgency might necessitate us to move faster. The second style of leading change leads from the head. And that's the style that always wants to move very quickly because what they're focused on is the purpose, is the change goal. They they understand the business objectives, and they want to move very quickly, rapidly to to get there. So therefore, they're visionary, they're strategic, they focus on the big picture, they're systems thinkers. That's all great, that's a strength, but sometimes what can they drop out? Well, sometimes what they drop out is giving people the plan to get from current state to future state, and that's the third style of leading change, leading from the hands. Those are the folks who love to plan the change, they're very process-oriented, detail-oriented, And they like to focus on how to make this happen, how to get it done. What can they drop out? Sometimes they can focus on change by checklist and be more efficient than effective. And they can get frustrated with the people that they're partnering with in change. So those are the three main styles leading from the hard head hands. And the other reason I like this analogy is because just like we each have a heart and a head and most of us have two hands, we have all those styles in our tool bag. We can do any of them. However, most people do tend to focus on one or two. Some people relatively evenly, but that's the idea is that we, we have all those styles and once we become aware of our dominant style and become aware how, aware how we deploy that effectively, but sometimes we overdo it or sometimes we miss the fact that we have these other tools in our tool bag that we should leverage in a change process. That's what helps us be effective. That's a change intelligent leader. So what does it practically look
1: like when we use the CQ approach to managing change? Do you use it in combination with other change models or or how do you practically implement it when you're rolling out a change?
0: I always say that CQ plays well with others. (laughs) So CQ change intelligence is a complement to our other change management model methods and tools because most of the model methods and tools that we have focus on managing change. They focus on the tools, the toolkits. So they focus on things like we know that we need to start off planning the change. We need to analyze our stakeholders. We need to create communication plans and engagement plans, and we need to enroll our sponsors. So a lot of it is, you know, again, spreadsheets, tools, toolkits, which I get are extremely important. We need them, and yet I believe they're baseline competency. They're baseline. They get us in the door. However, what we need to be optimally successful as change leaders is I believe we need to augment our training and focus on change management tools with our ability to lead change. And that's where CQ comes in as a compliment. Okay, I'm going to take a break
1: right there from our normal questions. I'm going to ask you a couple of rapid-fire questions. You don't have them in front of you, so don't think too much about it. First answer that pops into your head, that's what you should answer. Number one, what book would you recommend
0: anyone to read? My my go-to book is Man's Search for Meaning. Who's the person you look up to most in life? You know, again, it might be Viktor Frankl.
1: What is the most useful thing under $100 that you bought in the last year?
0: Well, probably my new iPhone had <laughs> earbuds because <laughs> I broke my old one. So, and I travel a lot, so that's extremely useful for me.
1: <laughs> Where's your favorite place to go on holiday? Cruises. Tea or coffee? Coffee. Dogs or cats? Cats. Thick base or thin base? Say that again? Thick base or thin base? and a pizza oh oh um a bit of a personal one there's a number of big changes somebody's that somebody can go through in their lives things like death of a spouse or divorce marital separation imprisonment personal injury or illness marriage dismissal from work have you gone through any of those types of big changes in your personal life over the last year and how did knowing about change management help you to deal with those
0: OK, so my biggest one was about a decade ago, and it was when both my parents started um, becoming ill and, uh, you know, they started aging. And it was the first time in my life that I really couldn't control something. And so that really was one of the genesis of change intelligence, frankly, is really looking at myself and how can I be smarter with how I'm trying to navigate my parents aging and helping them as well. For me, just
1: knowing about um, all, these, all these various quotients and, and, and having had some training and coaching and that sort of thing, it helps you tremendously in your personal life as well to be able to recognize change and deal with it. I think it makes, gives you a bit more empathy as well. Everybody has to go through a change curve themselves.
0: No, absolutely. And it's interesting you say that because when my book first came out, the first thing that people asked me is, can we get certified in this? Because at least in the United States, everybody's a certification junkie and wants to get (laughs) certified. So so I did. I spent the year creating the certification program, which launched in 2014. And the first time that I ran the program as a two-day in-person workshop, in between the first day and the second day, one of the women came back the second day and she was in tears. And she said that overnight she had a breakthrough with her mother that in the first day of the program, she got some insights about their relationship and they hadn't spoken in about three years and she called her and they realized they had different styles and the implications of that and that they were all both trying to do the right thing in the relationship but just really not a pre, their their intent, their positive intent with each other was having a negative impact on each other. And so she came back and she said, you know, Barbara, I think you should write CQ for families. <laughs> and, um, you know, and, uh, and several people over the last several years have said that to me. There's been therapists who have gone through the program and have said, you know, you should really bring this into the world of family and personal therapy. And, and of course, I'm an organizational psychologist, so my sweet spot is working with, you know, business professional organizations. So it's interesting you say that, because definitely people do see that that it applies.
1: Yeah, I think I think people forget when they're doing a big change program that it's a full person that arrives at work. You don't leave your personal self behind at home. You're still going to experience the same change feelings and emotions that you would with a personal change that you will at work if something happens to you at work. And we often forget that we often. Forget that people are full beings. You know, they they um they they experience change in their personal lives and at work, and they they go through the same change cycle. So I think that's quite Amen. important. That's right. Yeah. Very true. Okay, well, that concludes our rapid fire round. My next question is, and this is one that I really like to ask everybody because the more tools you have in your toolkit, the better because one of the big factors in implementing change is that people resist it. They don't want to be a part of it. Um, So what tactics do you use for people who resist change?
0: Well, that's actually one of the bottom lines of change intelligence, that I say what looks like resistance in other people is an opportunity for us as change leaders. So often I think that change leaders, people who lead change, they start off with the best intentions. They want to do the right thing for other people and their organization. However, at some point it often starts feeling like they're pushing the string, right? They're pushing the string and they're getting what looks like and feels like resistance from other people, right? And so and what I say is that what can we control? And this is a Viktor Frankl message from Man's Search for Meaning. We can only control ourselves, our mindsets and our behaviors. So I say that when we, you know, when we feel like we're starting to transition from doing something with and for others and we start feeling like we're doing something, against or to or even in spite of other people, turn the mirror back on ourselves, right? And see what we can do differently as change leaders, because so often, what is resistance? Either people don't get it, right? They don't get the reason for the change, which is the head. So therefore, as change leaders, what can we do? We can explain the change better, right? We can tell the story. Second, people don't want it. They don't want it. They have an emotional level resistance to it. So therefore, what can a change leader do? Leverage the heart communicate engage listen build trust or three they might get it intellectually they might want it emotionally but sometimes people just can't do it behaviorally they can't do it they haven't had the training they don't have the tools or there's barriers standing in the way in the organization of good people behaving consistently with the change so therefore what can we do we can add hands we can add the hands the process the tools and the help that people need so that's what i say that what looks like resistance in other people, as leaders, we can reframe that from enemy to ally. We can reframe what looks like resistance to a powerful source of information that we can use to, to change the only thing that we really can, which is ourselves. I mean, one of my favorite, or I think the best tactic um, to
1: apply to anybody who's resisting change is this first to sit down and listen to that person and why are they resisting it. And a lot of the times, just by sitting down and listening to that person, they will tell you why they are not on board, why they don't want to be a part of it, and then you can just address that issue. I think too often, we want to show the benefit of the change. We want to do all sorts of roadshows, do all sorts of things, but we don't listen to what people are actually resisting against. And I think that helps a lot to start listening.
0: Right, absolutely. And so that's one of my coaching often to executives, frankly, is that Because one thing, I have an assessment that people can take that helps diagnose what your change leader style is. And so therefore, I have a global database. And so one thing that's very consistent across industries and around the world is that folks at the executive level, at the top of organizations, as is not surprising probably, they tend to lead more from the head, focusing on the vision and the strategy, right? And that's their job. That's logical. That's a good thing. However, what can happen is that they can communicate in a one-size-fits-all way, like you just said. PowerPoints, roadshows, the exciting business case. What's also consistent in the database is that at the front lines, how people lead change is from the heart. A lot of people think the hands because it's executional, but no, it's from the heart, because if you think about it, like you just said, really change is one person changing their behavior at a time, right? And so really, it's all about engaging, communicating, talking, explaining, right? And so therefore, unintentionally, senior leaders, executives will often create resistance in others because they're not, they're, they're communicating in a way that works for them, not in a way that works for other people. So, so that is, I, so I love what you said because that is, that is so true that what do we need to do? I love an expression by Rosabeth Moss Cantor, um, who wrote many years ago, the change masters, and, and she has a quote that says, people that change is threatening when done to us, it's exhilarating when done by us. And we know that participation of any kind can lead to greater ownership, greater buy-in and of course greater quality of um of decisions and implementing change. So so I totally resonate with what you're saying. Mm. And
1: just like the full person arrives at work, I was wondering, do you use change management principles outside of work? So with your family and and those people do you since you know all of these tricks and tools of the trade? Do you use some of that those
0: principles on your family?
1: Uh,
0: that's funny. Um, it, it's interesting that you ask that because my son, who's seventeen years old and starting to look at colleges now, he uh, I think he's a budding psychologist too because he loves to take assessments and he's taken mine and we have conversations about it. So definitely, it's um it's something that the whole uh, kind of family is aware of and and um uh and and we like to we like to chat about. I think that you know it's interesting. I don't know that I use it as much with my immediate family, however, given what I talked about before with my parents' health issues, I find myself using it more and more when I interact with their physicians and the different people that are involved in their care in terms of attempting to understand where they're coming from in a very complex, sometimes seemingly cold healthcare environment, right? To really be able to, you know, build relationships with their different caregivers in a way that's going to help serve them best. So that's why I paused to think about it a bit because really I think it's, that's a situation where I can get hooked and I know that. And so remembering to take a breath, put my own oxygen mask on first, right? Thinking about how my behavior could make the situation more positive or not as positive. And making more positive choices in the moment, I think that part of change intelligence is how i is how I use it the most. I was just
1: asking because my partner is a coach, and um, I can recognize when he 's trying to coach me
0: <laughs> that 's hilarious actually I think my husband would would appreciate more if i uh it 's funny earlier in my career when um uh, you know, we used to work together and I would have a training session and we'd be putting binders together late at night the day before the training session. And he would, he would look through some of the hints around coaching or communicating positively or active listening. And he would laugh at me and say, So you teach this, but why don't you do it? <laughs> 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 I, think, I think they just don't recognize that we
1: actually are using those techniques. Um,
0: <laughs> well, and, there's, there's a couple of expressions I love too, is that you teach what you need to learn, right, which yeah. is hilarious, and then also that every master was once a disaster.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I like that one. I'm going to Hopefully remember I've it. evolved
0: over time.
1: <laughs> so you told us that lovely story about you being a young woman in the male-dominant industry, and, and I'm also in the same position. I'm also in a very, very male-dominant industry, working in the mining industry. So how do you think we've progressed as women in the workplace? Do you think our voices are being heard more?
0: I definitely think so. I mean, obviously, we know the statistics, and there's still a dearth of women at the C-suite and at the board level. And it, obviously, in certain types of industries, women are underrepresented, including manufacturing, heavy industry. And at the same time, um, it used to be when I started out that you know I was the only woman in the room. And I rarely see that anymore. I definitely see that we have by numbers, we have, we have more women. Um, you know, I definitely still see examples where a woman can say the same thing as a man and the woman's, you know, input will be dismissed and people all of a sudden will think the man is a genius, right? So definitely things like that still happen. And yet I think that there's more and more recognition of some of what the bottom line research shows that when there are a higher percentage of women in the C-suite at the board level, there's better organizational outcomes overall in terms of profitability, revenue, customer satisfaction, employee retention, a lot of different metrics. And I think that people are seeing that. And I also think that, you know, there's more of a recognition. I think in the, you know, older generation, like the baby boomers like me, I think that especially as men have seen their daughters get into the workforce and some of the struggles they've had, they see things from a different perspective talking about empathy. And I also think that, that when you look at the younger generations, They're just so much more used to diversity in all kinds of levels, right? Whether it's gender diversity, cultural diversity, sexual orientation diversity, so much more comfortable. And just expect it. Just expect it. Um, And also, I think another dynamic that's driving some positive change is just that one of the things we know that really helps retain and promote women is how family-friendly workplace practices are. And I think that a lot of the what I see in terms of the men of the younger generation is they want the same degree of work-life balance, right, that younger women do. And I think that that's also promoting some positive changes that are going to enable women to stay in the workforce and have their voices heard throughout the course of their career. So I definitely, I definitely see a lot of positive progress and uh, we still have a ways to go, of course. And yet I think that um, there, that I'm seeing progress and I'm also seeing some great tools and hints and insights for women to help us get our voices heard, right? Because again, even though there's societal, organizational, institutional barriers to getting our voices heard, I think also sometimes there's an opportunity for us to look at our style and how we're enabling our voices to be heard, right? What can we do to kind of self-empower, self-advocate? And so I think there's just a lot more coaching and tools and information and are available to build women's self-awareness up and also actionable strategies to to be more effective.
1: One of the things that I've been involved with myself is I'm on the Committee for Women in Mining, South Africa. And um, we provide a networking platform for professional women in this very male-dominated industry. So that it's not, there's plenty of boys clubs out there, but there's not a lot of places where women can share and their experiences and get support from other women. So we've been arranging those types of things for them. And I think it's been quite successful.
0: And that's wonderful. And you know, and it's, there's things that guys don't even deal with that is so important, right? Like what to wear to a job site, right? I mean, I showed up for the steel mill in a skirt and heels. What a dope, right? But I didn't know, right? I mean, I had no idea. So, I mean, it's just, that sounds like a silly example, but there's just, you know, um, you know, how to navigate and, um, uh, it, it, it's very important. So, so kudos to you for doing that. I'm sure that's a really valuable service for the, for the women in the network.
1: Yeah. I really enjoy those meetings. Um, so I wanted to know, uh, are there any interesting projects you're currently working on that you can actually tell us about?
0: Favorite project right now, actually, is that, as I mentioned, when I first started out, I was working with a lot of steel mills in bankruptcy. And my a few years later, I got a call to help start up a brand new steel mill. So doing it from the groundbreaking. It was uh, in the cornfields in Indiana. And it was a brand new steel mill. It was a joint venture between a U.S. steel firm and a Japanese steel firm. And I worked with them for about five years on the people side of the startup. And it was, you know, if you've ever been involved in a startup or any of your listeners had, you know how exciting that is. It's just all hands on deck. It's just just a thrilling process to, again, from groundbreaking to seeing the first coil of steel come off the line. So I just it was I learned so much and built so many great relationships well about 5 years ago uh, the um, plant manager called me and the union president both of whom were frontline guys one an engineer one an operator when we started it up and said to me hey Barbara a lot of the old timers like you <laughs> or us are retiring and their kids were starting to work there and they said we want to transmit this culture that we created which was a pretty unique culture in the steel mill—self-managed teams, right? Real partnership up and down the organization. Um, we want to transfer that to the new generation. And so they asked me to come back and do some work around their culture and changing generations. And um, and and so that's just been that's just been so exciting, just to just to see an organization that you know I played a small part in helping create. And that it's just surviving and thriving and that they're still so committed to, you know, again, not just getting steel out the door, but how they're working together and, you know, supporting and building the people that are making the steel. It's just so exciting. Any other projects you'd like to tell us about? So the other project I would share is actually in the healthcare industry. So something very different. And... As I mentioned, I have a certification program and so organizations will bring me in to certify their internal people so they can then leverage change intelligence throughout their organization. So this particular client is a, a, a healthcare system that operates across the state of Ohio. And for those of you who may not know what's going on in healthcare in the United States, there's all kinds of legislative changes and that's causing smaller community hospitals to merge together. It's causing a lot of new technologies to be implemented in hospitals. It's causing very different relationships between patients and providers and insurance plans. So it's just an industry that is going undergoing massive change. So this particular client, University Hospitals, they brought me in to train all of their learning and development people in change intelligence. And then internally, they trained almost all their leaders People leaders, so from the C-suite to frontline nursing staff in change intelligence. They trained about 1,300. They have a few hundred more to go in these concepts. And what's really exciting to me is because of the results that they're achieving. And so, for example, they are reporting that building their change intelligence, their ability to lead change, has had bottom line impacts, for example, on patient satisfaction. Now I think that is truly fascinating because again, how do you get from here to there? How does leading change help you satisfy patients? And we're exploring that more, but one thought I have on the subject is that people are just bombarded with so much change. If you're a nursing supervisor on the floor, you have to, again, integrate new processes because your hospital just got acquired. There's new technologies to be compliant with new government regulations. There's so much distractions that are key away from patients and their families. If you can build your capacity to smooth out these changes, then that just gives you so much more bandwidth to be able to really do your core job. And also what we're hearing is that people who deal with patients and families, for example, or people who do deal with government, the lobbyists, or people who do deal with insurance agents, for example, they are able to bring this information about head, hard hands together to the situation to understand how best to communicate and engage, overcome resistance or challenges with this other person so they can be more effective. So anyway, so that's a very exciting client example that um, you can download the case study from my website and it's just, I think, really gives an insight to what can happen when we develop a common language together. Cause that's one of the biggest things they saw is that now we have a common language, a simple but powerful common language that we can really partner together to execute all these changes in addition to serving our patients and their families. Yeah, and it's all about understanding each other better, right? <laughs> exactly. That's right. That empathy, right? And especially in healthcare, that is just um, enormous.
1: So where do you think change management is going as a profession?
0: I think I see two things. One of them is that, um, actually three things. So one of them is that change management, as we know, really hasn't been considered or wasn't kind of recognized or distinguished as a profession until maybe a decade ago. And so one thing that's definitely happening is, you know, I'm a member, for example, of the Association of Change Management Professionals, and the mission of that. Association is to create the discipline or, or support further the discipline of change management. So defining a standard for change management, defining um, a certification process for change management, a code of ethics for ethics for change management. So I think that's one change that's occurring. is just like the Project Management Institute did for project managers, or the International Coach Federation did for coaching. You know, We're looking at emerging as a recognizable discipline that we can actually talk about, explain. So that's that's one that I see. The second thing that I see is that we're definitely augmenting. We're learning that we still have a very high failure rate of change. And so we're recognizing that, as I mentioned before, change management skills and tools and toolkits are baseline. We need those in our profession. We need to know them, we need to use them. However, we need much more of a focus on change leadership, on the leadership skills, competencies, capacities, that self-awareness, that building our capabilities around leading change is so mission critical. So that's two. And I think the third one is just the interdisciplinary nature of what we do. I think that, and maybe this is something I want to see versus that I'm actually seeing, I think that I know that we as change management professionals, change agents, we need to bring so many disciplines to bear. As you mentioned, people bring their emotions to work, and I think we need to understand coaching tools and strategies. Uh, So often what we do is we work in teams. I think we need team-building capabilities. A lot of what we do affects the structure and process of organizations. I think we need to know a lot about the organizational development world. We need to manage projects and we need to understand about project management. So I think that, again, um, whether it's something that I see evolving or something that we as change agents need to be constantly aware of is continuing to develop ourselves as change agents and also remembering that we can leverage insights from allied disciplines to get the job done. That ends all of my questions that I had. Is there anything
1: else that you'd like to... Since you have the stage now, do you, is there anything else that you'd like to talk about in the change management field?
0: Sure. I can just share one other insight from my change intelligence database that might be of interest to your listeners. And that is that when I talked about the differences by level, but when I look at the prevalence of the change leader styles overall, about 42% of change leaders lead from the heart and about 40% lead from the head. Only about 18% of change leaders lead primarily from the hand. And I think that has some serious implications. We know that strategy is sexy, right? So we focus on the head. There's so much research about the bottom line benefits and importance of employee engagement. So I think we know that we need to focus on the head. We know we need to focus on the heart. What gets dropped out and I think is undervalued is the hands. And I think that's one of the critical reasons we have so much failed change is because we don't take the time to implement and evaluate and sustain the change. We don't install wedges to prevent backsliding. And we really don't look at all the different tentacles of what's going on in an organization. What are all the barriers, systemic barriers in the way of really having the change stick? So I would just leave your listeners with that and in, in to think about Am I really, as a change agent, doing what I need to do to really effectively implement the change and really effectively enable its execution? Oh, I think those are excellent insights. Where can
1: people find out more about and uh, your book and your company?
0: Sure. Well, my website is changecatalysts.com, so catalyst with an S. And on my website, you can download two free chapters of my book, which again is also available on, from Amazon and Barnes and Noble. There's also uh, downloadable tools like an adapt tool that you can use, the copies of my uh, past newsletter articles, a video of a keynote on change intelligence. So, and also there's case studies that you can download about how people, teams, and organizations have leveraged change intelligence to get some powerful results. So that's what I would suggest, changecatalyst.com.
1: Thank you very much, Barbara, for joining us on
0: the show. And you should have a wonderful weekend. Thank you so much for having me. And again, I, I invite any of your audience members to contact me at any time. Thanks to Dr. Barbara Troutland from Change
1: Catalysts. Unchanged is recorded at Solid Gold Studios. For more information about the podcast and to listen to previous episodes, go to solidgoldstudios.co.za forward slash Unchange. Here you will find show notes for this episode and more information about my guests. Until next time, I'm Pedro de Pasani, and you've been listening to Unchange.